Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, the Astros won the World Series again. Everything is terrible, uh, but we're in the offseason, and moves are starting to happen. So how are you doing? You know, the weather is cold today in New Jersey, but the hot stove is getting hot. So that makes me happy, finally. Yeah, let's do stuff. Yeah, we're definitely off to a quicker start to this offseason than previous years. And I think a lot of that is, you know, the, the 2022 season was delayed by the lockout. And so things were already pushed back. And then there were all those rainouts in, in October and the World Series pushed late into November. And so I think everybody kind of knows we're on a shorter offseason than usual. Maybe not by a ton, but by enough that it's probably time to kick things into gear. I think I saw, you know, the, usually at the GM meetings, which just took place in Vegas, uh, usually at those meetings, the teams are able to also begin negotiations with free agents. Uh, but that's right. there, there's a five-day freeze after the World Series, and those kind of overlapped this year. For And that doesn't usually happen. Usually they are just able to discuss with free agents. But uh, So we, we saw that at least be a little bit modified. But like you said, we still saw plenty of activity. We saw teams negotiating with their, you know, their own free agents, which is allowed within that five-day window. And we saw some deals being made. So... Uh, uh, if you have anything else you want to get to, I, I know you wanted to make a couple points about uh, kind of reminders about what we do and, and what our values are and what they aren't and, and things like that. I know you wanted to get some of that. Do you want to get that out of the way early or get into some news? Yeah. First? So, so yeah. It's, it's the fun time of year when fans get to play pretend GM and that's what our site is all about. So have at it. Uh, absolutely. Um, but then we see fans who maybe don't use our site who, you know, um, we see a lot of things on Twitter, like, oh, what do you, you know, Yankee fans saying, you know, oh, what, what you know, we should get um, Pablo Lopez for Gleyber Torres because they were thinking back, you know, from reports from earlier in the trade season uh, last year at the deadline. And, you know, sometimes I'll pipe in, uh, well, what, both Josh and I share usage of our Twitter account, and sometimes he does, and sometimes I do. At any rate, and, you know, just to sort of say, hey, you know, our value is this and some people will disagree with that and without really kind of checking the numbers so then we have to explain why it is so for example in, in Gleyber Torres's case he's uh he's getting pretty expensive in our terms and he only has two years of control so our model basically says those two years are worth about 29 million in field value so roughly 14 and a half per uh on an AAV basis and he's going to be making $24 million in that time. He's going to be making nine point eight this year, and it's going to set him up for over $14 million next year if patterns hold. So there's that much surplus value there. <clears throat> and plus he has that sort of second base sort of, you know, thing where the market's been cold on second baseman for years. So, and, you know, if you look at the free agent options, you can say, all right, well, you could sign Gene Segura and not give away any, any capital. You could sign Adam Frazier. There's other, they may not be as good as Torres, um, but, but my point is, um, quite often fans think their players, if they want to trade them, are higher in value than certainly our model says they are. And, you know, we think we speak for the market. Um, conversely, sometimes when they're going after targets, and I don't want to pick on Yankee fans, sometimes other fans as well, 
you know, a lot of teams will want to try to get Sean Murphy as an upgraded catcher, but they don't think he's worth as much as our values say they do. And so there's a tendency to kind of overrate their own players and underrate the target players that they want. And this is typical fan sort of bias that we've seen for years. And one of the reasons why our site exists is to say, hey, let's just take an objective look. Let's see what the data says. Let's be Switzerland. Let's say here's what they're worth. And yet people still will argue about it. And I suppose that's just the nature of the beast. But I just sort of wanted to say, you know, you might want to just, I don't know, use our site as kind of a homework tool. That's what it's there for. And I don't want to criticize anybody. I just want to just sort of level set a little bit to say that's what our site is for, to give you a, a, a sense of realistic values. We think we've done pretty well over the years on that. Uh, we've earned a lot of respect in the industry for that. So you might want to just check it out a little bit. So, um, but we'll continue to kind of respond and ed try to educate people as best we can, try to be neutral and say, here's what the numbers say and, and go from there. But I, I, I'm just saying, you know, it's that time of year where people are posting ideas all over the place. And so we're just trying to sort of like level set wherever we can. Yeah. All well said. And I, I like to think we've done a pretty good job of very clearly saying you know our our model our numbers are not the law of the land they're just our best estimate they'll be mm -hmm. wrong sometimes and when we are wrong we try to do our best to explain what happened and what we're going to mm -hmm. change if anything mm -hmm. and so i think we've done a good job of that and so but the caveat there is that because they are wrong sometimes they're that doesn't mean they're wrong all the time or most of the time or anything like that i i see a lot of those responses to, to some of these threads we get into on Twitter of, oh, I don't use that site anymore. They're, they're, they're wrong so often or they're wrong most of the time or whatever. And like, I know it's just Twitter, but like those are the ones that kind of grind my gears a little bit because like we, we publish our report card every, every deadline, every off season. And we show you exactly how it's going. And right now we're in the 94, 95% acceptance rate. And that's, that's the vast, vast majority of them, 19 out of 20 trades being correct. So that's, yeah, that one bothers me a little bit, probably more than it should. I know it's uh, Same here. Yeah. It's just Twitter, but I mean, I don't know how much more right we could be. I, I What I do see is I know that a lot of the times, and it's become kind of a, kind of a tongue-in-cheek, kind of a joke to see, you know, Jeff Passan will tweet that, Oh, some some update about Shohei Otani being on the trade block. And then in the replies, you might see a screenshot from the site where it's like Otani and Rendon for Miguel Andujar or something like that, because that's how the numbers work. And it's it's clearly a joke and it's not meant as, wow, this site sucks because it's accepted this. It's just meant as, haha, let's do this because the, the, the numbers work and the machine said it it was good. And, and so like that's one thing, because obviously a trade like that isn't going to happen. But that's not what our site exists to say. Our site doesn't exist to say that anything where the numbers line up are going to happen. And no matter what trade you plug in with what players, as long as you get it to one number to say, you know, each side to say the same number, that doesn't mean it's going to be a realistic trade that would 100% happen in real life. That's not at all what our site exists for. We leave so much of the subjectivity and the realism to the user to, to come up with that end of it. And so, yeah, if you're going off of all of those screenshots then you, that you see, then sure, 50%, maybe more of the screenshots you'd see from, from BTV are, are garbage. Throw them out the window. There are people joking around like that. But as far as the trades that have actually happened and how they've lined up with our values, we're doing pretty well. And I am comfortable standing up for that. And I know you are as well. 
Yeah. And I, yeah, those those get under my skin a little bit too, because like, all right, how much better can we do than ninety five percent? Statistically, that's about as high as you can get. Um, so uh, yeah, we stand by that as well. And the other sort of point, and you were just touching on it, is you know people can get a little crazy with with our simulator and and not even realize that you know what they're missing is the money component, right? So somebody posted a trade on our site the other day saying, oh, look, we can get Trout, Otani, and Radon, you know, and they um, and they were laughing at it because, you know, Radon's hugely negative number offset Trout and Otani's positive, to your point, and so they wouldn't have to give up much. And, you know, what I think, it, or maybe it was Twitter, I responded basically like, yeah, you're, you're taking on, like, 465 million in salary commitments for one broken player, another guy with a bad back, and one guy with one year of control. Like, <laughs> you really want to take on that much money? Because they're not thinking about the money. It's not their money, right? But we're trying to match what front offices are thinking about. And so there's a there's a gap there. Absolutely. And, and on that Otani topic, I know we have a ton to cover, and so we won't have time really this episode to get into the article that you wrote about Otani's yeah. trade value and why some people are missing in the wrong direction here. Some people are saying that he'll have this blockbuster return and he'll have a strong return, but he's because it's one year of a player, it, it's naturally limited. And so you wrote an article explaining why that is and what kind of return to expect for him. And I'll link yeah. to that. We don't have time to get fully into it. But one point I want to reiterate from that that I've also just been seeing all over the place is the ability to extend Otani doesn't add that much in terms of trade value. Right. Yes, you get kind of this exclusive negotiating window for a year, and there is some level of value to that. But... Otani's not going to be taking a hometown discount anywhere, right? Right. So even if he absolutely loves the team that he's traded to, and, and you know, maybe I'll even be generous. Let's say he gives him a million or two million per year of a, a hometown discount, which I highly doubt, but I'm just playing devil's advocate, being generous here. He's still signing a deal, a massive contract, one of the biggest we've ever seen, if not the biggest we've ever seen. And it's because it's going to be a massive contract, he's going to be getting as much as he can, as close as what he could get in free agency, there's not going to be any surplus on it. Yeah. And so and what you're dealing with, point. right. Yeah. What you're dealing with is the surplus that you already have in the year 2023, when he's mm -hmm. earning $30 million and has a field value significantly above that. Plus you're earning some of the star bonus of he's the unicorn and you have mm -hmm. so much international appeal and the fan base and the jerseys and all that nonsense. And, and we can even give you a little bit of leeway for, for the exclusive negotiation window for being able to potentially extend him, whatever, but all of that can only go so far. We're, we're still not talking about trading, you know, your top five prospects in a strong system to get one year of this guy. Yeah. <clears throat> it's not Juan Soto. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, we also have that S curve that we've talked about, which is an upper bound of what teams will pay either in money or prospect cop capital or some combination of both. They will only go so far, so that somewhat limits his 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 high end as well. Um, so yeah, that's the basic point. He's so close to free agency, you're going to pay retail for him. So there's not any additional surplus value or extremely little. So it is what it is. Yep. All right, let's move into the actual news here. We got a lot to get through, like I said, and we're going to try and keep a good pace. We've we've tried that before. We're going to make it happen this time. I swear. All right, <laughs> the Astros. We've we've covered this before. Uh, kind of previewed it, the interesting decision they'd have coming up after the World Series, whether they won or not, with Dusty Baker and James Click, and we got an answer here. They agreed to a uh, one-year 
additional contract. It's not technically an extension, but they, they signed Dusty back for another year. Good for him. Happy for him. Happy he got his ring. Uh, but they similarly offered a one-year deal to James Click, and Click said, no thanks, I'm, I'm out of here, and he left. And similarly, they fired assistant GM Scott Powers, who, uh, you know, Click's right-hand man. And so the Astros' front office is kind of in a state of disarray right now in a way that is very unusual for you to see after a World Series win, and especially such a dominant World Series win and such a dominant team still in place. Uh, but we discussed before the unusual circumstances that led to Click's hiring. You know, Jim Crane had to kind of rush and get a, a GM in place after Jeff Luno was kicked out uh, for the sign-stealing scandal, and so maybe he didn't get the time to get a guy that he was fully on board with. Some stories have come out about some disagreements between the size of the analytics team and just how the team has operated. James Click is continuing to run it in a very analytically forward Tampa Bay Rays sort of way, and maybe Crane is a little bit more old school, wanting to flex the financial muscle in, in some different ways than Click is. And yeah, so now they're, they're kind of left pretty open in the front office. Don't Haven't seen any indication of where they're going to go next with this or any indication of where Click and Powers are going to go next, but it's certainly a big storyline, and it's, uh, it's certainly a weird situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Clearly, they're, they're they're not on the same page. They probably don't get along well. It doesn't seem like there's any love lost between Click and Crane. So it seems like it's mostly a, just a, a conflict of style and or communication and or all of the above. So, yeah, the writing was on the wall there. We saw it coming through various reports a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's weird that they just won the World Series and then this happens. Um, but, look, um, if it's not working, it's not working for them, and I'm sure Click will find another job somewhere else. It's hard to turn down the guy who just won the World Series and was a GM for a couple of years. Um, but you know, it's it's also kind of solidifying the fact that Crane is seems to be a metal metalsome owner, and he has that right as an owner. But at the same time, you might want to let the baseball guys do their baseball job. Yeah, and it's worth noting that every front office is more than one or two guys. There's, there's a whole team that is in place of, of very smart people that are running the show in Houston. And yeah, losing click and powers is a big deal. And Patilla who went to the giants, he was a big mind there. And so, yeah, they might be left, you know, leaderless, I guess you could say, but there's still plenty of talent, plenty of brains in that front office and plenty to like about that organization and how it's run. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too concerned yet. Uh, I mean, it, it's definitely not a good sign, and we'll we'll have to see who they do bring in to replace those guys, but uh, I wouldn't be too concerned yet about Houston falling back to the Stone Ages or anything like that. No, um, and they are still riding high. You know, they're still a very strong major league team, obviously, but their farm system is very weak, and so I don't want to be a doomsayer or anything, but it's gonna there's going to come a point in time when, oops, the farm system is too weak. And, you know, they got penalized with draft picks and so on from the cheating scandal. And so, um, you know, it, once this core starts to fall off, then the weak farm is start, starting to become an issue. It will start to become an issue, and you will need somebody smart running the show there. So it's a year or two away, but it's coming. Yeah, agreed. And speaking of the Rays and, and smart people running the show, the Rays hired John Daniels as a senior advisor for baseball ops. And... We talked about it at length when the Rangers let him go. It kind of caught everybody off guard. He's been in Texas forever, and we speculated about where he might end up. I don't think we mentioned the Rays among that speculation. It, it seems a little bit out there, but hey, I mean, there, there's some value to, I, and I'm not even, I'm not trying to suggest that Daniels doesn't think in the Rays way or that he's too old school or anything along those lines, but 
he doesn't strike me as the typical Rays guy. And I think there's some value to introducing some diversity to a front office, even if it's, you know, even if it is a front office like the Rays. I don't think it hurts bringing in another mind with maybe some differing opinions, push and shove a little bit and, and challenge the minds that are already there. Not I, not that the Rays are doing anything wrong to begin with, but right. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the signing at all. I love it. I, I totally agree. And, you know, it's hard to, you know, the Rays have been a source of, of you know, cherry picking smart people. The other clubs have been cherry picking them for years. Right. And so it's fun to see it go the other way. And I love what it says about the Rays open mindedness saying, yeah, we can continue to do our thing. But oh, let's bring this other uh, respected guy in just for a different sort of voice. And I think that's so smart. It just makes them look even even more mature and smarter than they already are to do that. And and really, you know, also, you know, it, it speaks well of them to say, hey, you know what, John Daniels is a smart guy. He, sh he should have a job. So we're going to give him a job and we're going to benefit from him. I, I just love what, what all the angles of that. Me too. And I know we, we do plenty of work on this podcast to praise the Astros and the Rays and teams like them. But it, I just want to bring it up again, how many challenges they face because they're so smart, because they're so good. They, they face a constant brain drain of sorts of all of their top executives and bench coaches and everybody always gets hired away to these other teams. But the fact that the Astros and the Rays are both still chugging along, still leading the pack in contention every single year it's impressive we haven't i don't think we have things like that going on anywhere else in the sport really you could look at the dodgers but they also have a 300 million dollar budget to back it up that's it's really impressive what, what those two teams are doing yeah and to your point i mean x-rays executives are all over the place right the dodgers red sox used to be the astros but i mean there's you know and and they're filtering around in other places too i'm sure i'm forgetting some um but yeah, there has been a brain drain there. And so they have to, just like, you know, there's always sort of a churn with their players. There's somewhat of a churn in their front office too. So they got to, you know, it's always a challenge to kind of keep that, that <clears throat> you know, fully staffed with, you know, strong voices. So the Daniels hiring is another one of those. So it's good. Mm -hmm. well, all right. Moving from the front office uh, down onto the players here. Let's start talking about some transactions or soon-to-be transactions, just everything that's come through the wire the last couple weeks. Uh, let's start with the qualifying offers. So 14 players were extended the qualifying offer, which this year is a one-year $19.65 million contract. Um, some of these no-brainers. Aaron Judge, Trey Turner, Xander Bogarts, Jacob deGrom, Dansby Swanson, Carlos Rodon, uh, Brandon Nimmo, Wilson Contreras, those are the very obvious, we knew those guys were getting it. Uh, you, you could probably quibble over whether Contreras should have, but it seems like there's maybe a market perception that he's better than our raw numbers would say he is, or at least he's valued higher than our raw numbers would say. Uh, but he, he he's still an inoffensive qualifying offer candidate. And then we get into six more interesting ones. Chris Bassett's at the top, he... He's probably in that same tier as Contreras, where it is it is inoffensive. He's looking for a multi-year deal. He might not, he probably won't top the 19.65 AAV, but he might get a decent multi-year deal for himself. So, again, not not a bad decision to extend in the qualifying offer. He'll probably reject and get himself a nice contract somewhere. Uh, but then we head into the bottom five here of Anthony Rizzo, Tyler Anderson, Martin Perez, Jock Peterson, and Nathan Eovaldi. And... Those last two are really kind of out there. I don't think anybody predicted that Peterson or Eovaldi would get a qualifying offer. 
Um, so, so where do you want to start with these five? Uh, I, I suppose I should also mention that before the qualifying offer, Anthony Rizzo had to decline his $16 million player option with the Yankees. Uh, and then that led to the qualifying offer. He's pretty clearly, he was either looking for the qualifying offer, you know, get a few extra mil out of it or looking for a multi-year deal. We'll have to see. Uh, maybe he's just kind of testing his market while he has the qualifying offer there. And if he doesn't get anything good enough, then he'll just accept it. Something along those lines I could see. Uh, but otherwise, where where are you with these five guys? Rizzo, Tyler Anderson, Martin Perez, Jock Peterson, and Nathan Eovaldi. So <clears throat> Anderson, so, all right. Um, the Dodgers have done this before, uh, with Hunjin Ryu a couple of years ago, where on paper, sort of 13 or 14, and that's about where Anderson is. Um, and it's, it's sort of a, sort of a, a probabilistic model. Like if you're worth more than 19, 100%, you should give the qualifying offer because there's no downside. If they say no, you get a draft pick and say yes, you get surplus value. So done. If he's worth right around that 19, pretty much the same thing. But when you start to get a little bit under, it becomes kind of the sliding scale of probability, right? If he's worth 18, do you want to take the bet that he takes it? Yeah, okay, fine. And you lost 1 million in surplus value, but you gained a good player who's worth 18 on the field. So that's a good trade-off. As you sort of slide down that scale, down to 15, you're like, yeah, that's, that's where it gets a little questionable. Like, okay, I may be wasting 3 or $4 million, but okay, still, I mean, I'm okay. So that's kind of where you go with Anderson, right? He's worth, he's, he's sort of in that range, 13 to 15 range. Um, Rizzo, we have him down to like 11. Um, Peterson, we have him at like nine. And that's where it gets funky. <laughs> like, like Rizzo is weird because, you know, I think the market, like the Cubs offered him that extension and he said no. And at the time our model said, well, yeah, that's a pretty fair extension. And the market was sort of like, oh no, that's too low. But then it turns out that, you know, the contract he signed a couple of years ago with the Yankees was, was, was pretty fair. So he's getting older. He'll be 33 next year, you know, and he's good, but perhaps his best years are behind him. So he's, you know, it's a bit of a stretch, you know, in other words, if you're Anthony Rizzo and you get offered 19 and a half million dollars, you should probably take it at this point in your career, unless he really feels confident that he'll get, you know, you know, a multi-year contract in the multi-years the totality of that is what he wants more so than the AV if you follow my drift. Um, so that makes sense. Um, I can't see a world where Jock Peterson, though, is, is, is worth that. I'm sorry. I don't know. Um, I know the Giants are a smart organization. Um, I know they have a lot of money. They're not used to wasting money. So that's the that's the big one I question. Martin Perez, I think you can make a case for. Again, probabilistic in that sort of 13 to 15 million range, AEV-wise. And so it gets to the point, you know, the Rangers definitely need starting pitching, and he seems to like it there. They like him there. He does well. So I can I can see a case for that. Anderson's coming off a four-year. I can see a case for that. It's Rizzo and Peterson that are harder for me. That's where I'm at. Yeah, so I definitely want to divvy those up as well. I'm with you on the pitchers for sure. I think I think it's a, a different equation for pitchers versus hitters. I think a pitcher like Perez or Anderson or Eovaldi, they might be more worth extending the qualifying offer to because as a pitcher, they might prefer a three-year, $30 million deal over a one-year, $19 million deal because there's just always the chance they're pitchers, they could break down, especially guys like Perez and Anderson, who weren't really much of anything a couple years ago. 
you know, they they might be looking for longevity more than anything else in their contract. And so there's a chance you get them to decline. Some team signs them to that 327, 330, whatever, and you get a draft pick back. Or you're just getting a, a year of a solid pick pitcher and there's the whole adage of there's no such thing as a bad one-year contract. So I think it's a bit of a different equation for pitchers. I'm with you on Rizzo and Peterson as well. Um, the only thing I can even squint and think with Peterson is he, he had a fantastic offensive year and maybe they just disagree with the defensive metrics on him. Maybe they think he's a capable corner outfielder, in which case, yeah, he's probably still not quite deserving of that full 19.65 million, but it's the Giants. They have money to throw around and maybe they're willing to move a bit on the margins just to get the deal done, get their guy that they like. And and that's kind of my conclusion overall with these bottom five guys is I don't think you can look at the model saying the, the model said that these, these five guys were a poor qualifying offer decision. I, I don't think you can look at the fact that they received qualifying offers and say, ah, oh, the model must be wrong. I don't think that's quite fair. I think you have to remember that the model it works in the aggregate. You know, we're, we're adjusting for the average team. And these teams here, Yankees, Dodgers, Rangers, Giants, Red Sox, these are not the average teams. These are the financial powerhouses. Yeah. And so they can afford to spend a few million extra, you know, a few, a few million more than a guy quote unquote deserves to lock him in early in the off season, get him on their roster, make sure he's back for them. And, and especially if he's a guy like Martin Perez, where it, it seems like the Rangers are just infatuated with the guy. They wouldn't move him at the deadline. They've been talking about extending him basically all season. And if you really like a guy that much, then just, just hand him the money, keep him there and worry about the rest of your off season. So I think, I think that's kind of the approach with, with most of these, but I will very strongly agree that Peterson is just strange. Yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, look, yes, he had an absolutely, his best offensive year, so that probably explains it. We're looking at the totality, though. The the defense has always been, you know, it's not a strong suit at best. You know, he's a bad left fielder. You know, at worst, he's a DH, and he's most likely perceived by the market as a DH. So that one, I, you know, I guess you can say, yeah, the Giants have money. They can afford it. They need the bat, so fine. Um, Martin Perez, though, he put up 3.8 F4 last year. And like I said, he really seems to like it in Texas, and they like him. So you can see a case where, yeah, that's it's not 19 worth it, but it's like 15-ish worth it. Okay, fine. They're making that calculation because even if they get a draft pick out of it, if he declines, you know, that's still, you know, it was a gamble worth taking. So, um, yeah, I'm mostly okay with that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and I love your point about, like, these are the powerhouse teams, the ones with financial muscle. And the absolute, uh, it's absolutely true that we have to sort of play to the bell curve. The average team. The average team would be very conscious of, yeah, it's probably not a good use of our money with you know those those borderline cases, um, but the bigger sort of spendier teams, if you will, can afford it. So okay. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to some trades. Uh, probably the biggest one we had these last couple of weeks. We haven't had anything too massive, but kind of out of nowhere, the Braves traded Jake Odorizzi to the Rangers. Uh, so Odorizzi we had at negative 8.2 million in median trade value. Uh, they also sent along $10 million in cash. And in exchange, the Braves received left-handed pitcher Colby Allard, former Braves prospect Colby Allard, uh, who we had at 0.0. So deal ended up fair. It's uh, 2.8, or excuse me, 1.8 million in value in positive value heading to the Rangers. 
because of that money covering most of Odorizzi's contract compared to zero heading to the Braves. Uh, pretty clear here, the, the Braves get out from about $2.5 million of Odorizzi's contract, and they didn't. he wasn't great for them down the stretch. They didn't really have a spot for him long-term. Makes sense that they'll just swap him, get another arm they can give a shot in Allard, and save a little bit of money. They need every penny they can get this offseason since they'll have to figure out what they're doing at shortstop, either re-signing Dansby Swanson or finding a high-caliber replacement. Plus, they could probably use a couple more quality arms in the rotation and bullpen, so... Saving a little bit of money on their end, whereas the Rangers really, they're, they kind of built their roster backwards. You know, they they signed Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager to those big contracts last offseason. They got their stars, but it was a very angels-looking roster for most of the season. It was a very stars and scrubs. They didn't have many of those one-to-two-win players that fill out the roster for you, and that's what Odorizzi can be for them. He can eat some innings in the rotation at hopefully near a league average level and just help raise the floor on their team a little bit so pretty clear trade uh do you have anything to add here uh no um so it's a good validation that our our numbers were very close um so that that was good um allard being a former braves prospect they figure okay maybe we can we know him already we can we can find some something good to useful out of him um odorizzi look the rangers need the pitching I mean, they have John Gray and you know, a bunch of question marks that are unproven. So at the moment, Odo Rizzi would slot into their number two slot. But look, all the rumors are that they're in the pitching market and the free agency and possibly trade as well. So chances are they'll they'll bolster the top part of that rotation, and then all those guys would slide down, slide down. I expect that by by the end of the off season, Odo Rizzi will be a four, if not a five, and eat some innings. So. It's fine. He's a little bit more reliable than Allard in that respect, and if they want to start competing, then that's probably a better bet, and it doesn't cost them much, so good. Mm-hmm. All right, another deal. The Pittsburgh Pirates acquired first baseman Jimon Choi from the Rays. Uh, we had Choi at negative 0.7 million in median trade values. In exchange, uh, the Rays received minor league right-handed pitcher Jack Hartman at 0.1. So, again, fair, fair deal, very much within our margin of error. Uh, the Rays had to make a bunch of decisions. It's it's that time of year, folks, where we're protecting prospects from the Rule 5 draft and activating players from the 60-day injured list and placing them on the roster, and guys are getting outrighted and non-tendered, released, DFA'd, everything. So a bunch of those minor swaps, and we'll see a couple more into this week up ahead. I believe the non-tender, or not, excuse me, the uh, 40-man protection deadline is on Tuesday of this week, the 15th of November. So... We'll see some more of these minor moves between now and then. Uh, this is a case where Choi is a role player, and he was fine for Tampa Bay, had some big moments, was a pretty good performer, but arbitration is paying him a little bit more each year, a little bit more each year, and now he's just kind of priced himself out of having any surplus value, and the Rays have some first base options behind him waiting on the farm. Uh, I think Jonathan Around and uh, Kyle Manzardo are the two. Uh two interesting first base prospects they have that they probably want to try out and save some money on Choi. So they went ahead and did that. And then for the pirates, it's just another piece they can potentially flip at the deadline. Uh, that's nothing more than that. Yeah. I mean, it's no surprise. You know, the Rays fans on our side are very smart about their roster, you know, uh, issues. They always are. So they knew Choi was probably destined to be traded because his time was kind of up, you know, on, in the Rays model of ways of doing things, you know, getting a little bit expensive to your point and he's not a star he's certainly capable but he's not a star so that's the kind of player they typically move and if they get 
anything back from them, it's it's fine. And so they got a very, very minor prospect, uh, kind of a deep draft choice that didn't really have any prospect uh, uh, visibility, so maybe they can make something of it. Anyway, it's fine. Um, what I think is interesting is that from the Pirates' point of view, what they're saying is, hey, maybe we'll compete this year. Hey, maybe we need a veteran at first base. Hey, maybe we shouldn't just play all prospects. Maybe we should try. So let's see if they're right. Let's see if they do more things like that. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, and then from there, just two very minor trades that I think I'm just going to tell you what happened, and we'll move on from them. The Brewers picked up catcher Peyton Henry from the Marlins in exchange for outfielder Remington Batista. Uh, this is just another 40-man shuffle, plus the Brewers are losing Omar Narvaez to free agency. They could use some catcher depth. Henry, a former Brewers uh, catching prospect, and the Marlins wanted to open up a 40-man spot for reliever named Sean Reynolds. And then uh, the Reds acquired Nick Solak from the Rangers in exchange for cash considerations. Most likely just more roster shuffling, Reds taking a chance on a former prospect, that sort of thing. Uh, these are both fair deals, well within normal margin of error and not worth giving too much time to, I'd say. Yeah, the only other thing I would add is that um, we had um, f forgot to mention in our behind-the-scenes calculations that Solak um, had just burned his last option year. So um, once we realized that, it was like, oh, okay, that makes sense then. Because the Rangers just had no other option other than to they, – they couldn't send them down to the minors, so they had to clear the spot. So they just took cash. So that's fine. Mm -hmm. All right, and then last trade item is a trade that didn't happen, but really interesting. Uh, Jeff Passan of ESPN reported, and I think this was during the World Series, uh, reported that the Astros nearly traded for catcher Wilson Contreras at the last trade deadline. And we talked a lot at the deadline – and on the podcast and on our deadline live stream and everything about just kind of some confusion of why the Cubs kept Contreras. He was a pending free agent. We know they like him, but, you know, he's the kind of guy you trade. And if you want to bring him back, you do so in free agency. And Contreras in general has been kind of a different, a difficult player to evaluate because the glove seems to have taken a step back and he's still a decent hitter, but kind of looking like more of a catcher left field dh than a straight up starting catcher these days and so kind of kind of a tough player to evaluate and teams are always a little iffy about trading for catchers at the deadline anyway um but he was he was a popular fit for the astros for the mets a couple other teams and he stayed put and so we were all pretty curious about that but it turns out the astros did have a, a deal in place for him it was for right-handed pitcher jose urquidy and I went ahead and dug up the numbers from the deadline. And at the time, we had Urquidy at $11.1 .1 and Contreras at $9.9 9 So would have been a fair deal, would have been a win for us. Yep. And it just got nixed uh, because I think I think the report was that Dusty wanted to hang on to Urquidy. And I think you can argue either way on that one. Uh, Urquidy was, is a decent pitcher, and he's probably got a few solid years ahead of him for the Astros. And... Uh, he was fine down the stretch. He didn't get much usage in the playoffs, but on the other hand, you know, the, the Astros won the World Series without Contreras and with Urquidy, so I don't think you can nitpick too much. Uh, yeah. Instead, they get to they, they went out and got Christian Vasquez, who was okay for them, and they won the World Series anyway. So <laughs> definitely not nitpicking too much on the Astros' side. I guess it, it this maybe gives me a little bit of sympathy for the Cubs, a little bit of leeway for them. They didn't blunder the deadline by not trading Contreras. They just had a deal lined up and the team backed out. And there's not a whole lot you can do there if, if other teams aren't quite meeting your price either. So I think this would have been a great deal for them. I think they would have been very happy with it. But yeah, you know, it takes, takes two to tango. 
Yeah, exactly. And it, it does a good job of sort of like rewriting history a little bit because there were a lot of Twitter rumors to say, oh, there was no market for Contreras, and that's why the Cubs hang on, hung on to him. Well, there was a market, and he was fine. It was fair. <laughs> it just didn't work out. Um, the deal got dixed at the last minute. So you can't really blame the Cubs. You can't really say there wasn't a market for Contreras because it looks like there wasn't, so everything was, would have been fine. So let's move on. Yep. It's just always fun to learn about these. Yeah. After after the time after the fact trades that never came to be I don't know if you like a handful of years ago uh, there was like a data leak from was it from the Astros front office uh, the Cardinals uh, guy the former Cardinal I can't no, remember the details was that was it that one the, no there was an Astros front office leak that gave like a couple years of trade deadline notes and discussions and mm. there was stuff in there about a Stanton proposal that would have mm. cost them Springer and Correa and I'll, I'll try and find that it was it yeah. was a very it was one of my favorite articles when i was you know starting to get more into baseball and everything it was it was full, always fun to think of the hypotheticals yeah i guess that kind of explains where i ended up huh <laughs> the whole website of hypotheticals there you go <laughs> all right moving into free agency here it's been a relatively busy early start to free agency even despite some of the factors we discussed earlier with the you know the five-day window uh, but let's start with a group of relievers here. I'm just going to list these off, and we're going to kind of talk about them individually as well as as a group. Uh, Edwin Diaz is back with the Mets. He was one of their big question marks this offseason. He gets five years, $102 million, a record-breaking deal for a closer, but uh, perhaps not too surprising, and we'll get back to that in a bit. Uh, Robert Suarez re-signs with the Padres. He had an opt-out, and instead he'll re-sign for five years and $46 million, and he does get another opt-out in there as well. And then the Astros re-signed Rafael Montero to a three-year $34.5 million deal. And the last reliever to take note of here is what happened with Brad Boxberger of the Brewers, where he was a, a very cromulent reliever for them the last two years, very solid, nothing, nothing spectacular, not a closer, nothing to write home about, but solid. And the Brewers declined their $3 million option on him. And, and reportedly, they passed him through waivers before they made their option decision, and no team claimed him. So nobody wanted Brad Boxberger at one year and $3 million, which is pretty interesting. So yeah. what we kind of see among this group, and I'll, I'll let you get into the numbers and the specifics here, but what we kind of see is this is about what we projected for Edwin Diaz. You know, he's he's been the best closing pitching the best relief uh free agent in a long time and naturally he beats the previous record for a closer that Roldis chapman got and when you kind of apply inflation it, it's about the same territory as chapman got so it makes sense and, and then you have suarez and montero who are both relatively unproven at this level of success and getting big dollars and big guarantees of years and then on the other hand, you have Boxberger, who looks like he's fine, but he's not getting $3 million. So how do you kind of suss yeah. this all out? Um, well, first of all, it's early. So I, we're getting a lot of sort of comments like, hey, have you guys adjusted all your reliever prices yet? I'm like, it's two data points. <laughs> um, let's give it a chance. So Diaz was fair. Um, now, what you'll see on our side is a surplus, but that's because the $12 million signing bonus like if he were not that he would be traded, but if he ever would be traded down the road, that twelve million dollars, which is part of that one hundred and two calculation, would not be 
the responsibility of the acquiring team. So we can't include it in his trade value calculation, which makes it seem like there's more surplus than there actually is uh, because you've got to basically subtract that 12 out of it and you get a fair deal. Um, so that was fair. Um, the box burger situation is weird unless there's some physical issue that hasn't been reported yet because he looks like he's worth more than $3 million on paper. And if 30 teams passed on him, it makes me suspicious that there's some other thing we don't know. Um, but from a market ca calibration standpoint, you know, that's a negative. It says, uh oh, maybe relievers, you know, granted it's one data point. But then you've got these other two weird ones where they look like overpays. And most of the industry sort of raised their eyebrows like that seems like an overpay. In our model, yes, Suarez was an overpay, Montero was an overpay significantly. Um, so now, even if you look at like, you know, dollars per war, if you look at steamer projections or any others, you might think, wow, Suarez isn't worth that much and Montero isn't worth that much. Well, we learned long ago that you can't value relievers just in dollars per war. There's a lot more that goes into it. You have to look at some of the underlying stat cast numbers. You have to look at other things like leverage, uh, win probability added is a, is a key one that we look at because they're always used in leverage situations as the better ones are. So how they do in those leverage situations matters. So you have to, it's, so it's a, it's a cocktail of data, basically. You have to look at to get a truer picture of relievers. And even though we still do that, we're, you know, there's, there's a higher variance because, you know, if you look at the best relievers from two years ago, three years ago, you know, um, the, the list is dramatically different than the top relievers of today. Um, so most of them fall off. So we have to sort of account for that, which is why typically you don't see the market giving long contracts to relievers because they're so volatile. And I know I'm not saying anything new, but there's, there's so much volatility that you have to bake that into any sort of estimate especially with the longer term guys. So when you factor all that in, you say, yeah, those two Montero and, and um, Suarez look like overpays. But then you got to ask yourself, okay, wait a second, who made these deals? Well, Suarez was AJ Preller, who <laughs> those of you who follow us know he's always a bit of a wild card and a bit of a win now guy, not afraid to overspend either in money or player capital. So there's that. And then, oh, Jim Crane just fired his GM. And then the Astros sign, like, who signed that deal? Who signed Montero? Was it Crane, the owner? Um, like, did, you know, was he overruling click? Like, I don't know who signed that deal in Houston. So there's there's two extenuating circumstances here that sort of make me wonder if we can really trust these as sort of market-serving data points. So I want to wait and see, basically, what the rest of the market looks like um, before you know, rising, you know, raising the bar on all the relievers across the board. I'm not sure we're there yet. I think there's a couple other factors too that that matter here. Uh, one for Suarez being that we only have one year of solid data because he came over from was it Korea, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he came over from Korea. He was dominant over there, but we only have this one season of MLB data to work with. And so, if you were, I'm sure, to treat that that Korea performance, that KBO performance as MLB performance. I know you can't do that, but if you were to do so, I bet that makes this deal look a lot better. You know, if, if you have this established track record of him being a solid late inning arm and yeah, maybe he was only worth 0.7 F war this year. But as you mentioned, there's a whole lot else that goes into it and he throws hard and he's nasty and he missed a little bit of time with injury. So that number should be a little higher, that kind of thing. So if, if you start to make these adjustments and, instead of just the data that sees one year of MLB performance, you can paint a picture of him being a consistently 
reliable late inning arm. I think that helps his case a lot. Uh, for the Astros, there's a bit of a trend that I've heard about in the past, read about in the past, of World Series teams to keep the band together, even if it means overpaying a little bit. So this could be part of that trend. It could also just be Houston being so confident that they fixed Rafael Montero and he's just going to be solid going forward that, again, he's just a different guy than an overarching look at the numbers would tell you. And so they could be confident there. And then the last one is that it's a pretty weak relief market this year. After Diaz and these two guys, it falls off pretty hard. So it could be, you know, a bit of a panic of, yeah, we have this exclusive, excuse me, exclusive negotiating window with these two guys. Let's just get them locked up and not have to worry about the bullpen. So I, I could see all of that playing a role as well. Yeah. And that point has been made by other folks um, on Twitter and elsewhere. Like, yeah, it's pretty thin after that. I get that. So maybe, um, and maybe they were feeling like they probably heard some, some, you know, inklings that the market would pay overpay for, for those two guys. So, so the two teams that did it within that window, that exclusive window, that, okay, we better lock them up now. And to your point, if you look at Suarez on a one-year basis, $9 million is not that big a deal for him. I mean, I would have thought 218 would have been fine, and I mentioned that to a friend. But um, but then when you extend it out to three, four, or five is when it starts to, you know, because of the volatility and unpredictability of relievers, that's where I start to get hmm, <laughs> less comfortable. One or two years at $9 million per, that's fine. Uh, but so you, you kind of make keys. But then your point is, if you include the Korea numbers and you think, okay, those are sort of equivalent, which you can't really do, but let's say you do, I guess you can feel a little bit better about that. Yeah, and, and there's one other factor that I've been really sitting on for a while now and trying to decide if it matters or not. And these two teams are kind of on opposite sides of the spectrum of it, where the Met, or excuse me, the Padres, they have a decent amount of work to do this offseason, right? They're losing a lot of their rotation. They were on track to lose Suarez and Nick Martinez. He opted out as well. He was a part of their pitching staff. They lost Manaya. They, I think they have one year left on Snell. They lost Clevenger. One year left on Darvish. They, they're kind of, they got a clock going. Soto's expensive. Hater's expensive. Mm -hmm. They lost Myers. I know that's not a huge loss, but mm -hmm. they're going to have have to fill that production somewhere. And so they got a lot of work to do this off season. So I wonder if there's an argument and I think the Mets have this as well with Diaz where they lost to Grom, Nimmo, handful of other guys, most of their rotation, actually. I wonder if there's an argument to let's just get this out of the way and not worry about this. I wonder if there's something there. And I also wonder on the flip side, when you look at the Astros where they could, I mean, they get, they got to figure out what's happening with Justin Verlander. But beyond that, they probably could have just run the same team into next season, you know, sub subtract Christian Vasquez and Trey Mancini, who are walking as free agents, and just bring the rest of the band back together, and boom, they're good to go, and they're going to win 105 games. Like, yeah, I think they could have done that. And so I wonder if it's just, you know, yeah, we 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 don't have to necessarily be hyper efficient. We have an excellent ball club in place. We like this guy. Let's just grab him and not have to worry the rest of the offseason, that kind of thing. I wonder if either of those actually play a role. I don't I don't have any confidence over whether they do. It's just a, a thought I've had for a while. No, and, and it's a great point, especially if you take the Astros and look how, how young and cheap that pitching staff is with Framber and and um 
Javier, who throws a no-hitter in the World Series, and um, uh, Luis Garcia is young and cheap. I mean, like, they've got surplus value all over the place, right? So Alvarez is still young and cheap. I know they signed him to an extension, but it was a team-friendly extension. So, like, they've got plenty of surplus to work with. They've got a lot of locked-in money here and there. So, like, yeah, they can afford to, like, spend a little bit on on a guy who they think uh, is, you know, is worthy of, you know, typical seventh or eighth inning leverage spots. So, um, yeah, I have no problem with that either, especially in that context, and especially to your other point, if if the rest of the options are thin. Okay. And then my last one, I want to I wanna come back to Boxberger real quick. I wonder if this is a similar case to what we've talked about in the past with the luxury tax, where, bear with me here, I don't know if this is actually a good comparison or not, but <laughs> the luxury tax, we've talked about it in the past, where you don't want to go over the luxury tax threshold to sign a Brad Boxberger, right? You don't want to go over it by $3 million. If you're going to go over it, you want it to A, be, it, be for somebody who's worth it. And we kind of saw that with the Phillies when they signed Castellanos and Schwarber, like they those are star caliber players or at least perceived as star caliber players. And that's, that's worth busting over the luxury tax and paying penalties for. And so you want it to be for a star caliber player. And you also want it to, you know, if you're going to go over, you want to go all the way over. You don't want to just be a million over because then it's kind of a waste to go over in the first place. So not exactly the same concept here, but the same kind of idea of, you know, if Boxberger wasn't at the top of any team's list, maybe they don't want to lock in that $3 million for him right now. Maybe they'd rather see how the rest of their offseason sorts out. And, you know, Boxberger, he'll probably be available for 3 or $4 million later in the offseason or, or somebody equivalent to him, either in a trade or in free agency. He's not necessarily such a hot commodity that if I pass on Brad Boxberger at $3 million right now, I'll never be able to get somebody like him again this offseason when I decide I want him. So I wonder if something like that plays a role. I guess I'm squinting a little bit. Sorry, <laughs> because you know, part of me thinks, okay, if you're gonna, you know, you've got money to spend, you're budgeting out for like if-then scenarios, right? And and you're thinking big, typically, especially if you're one of the bigger teams. Um, and so you're thinking, all right, um, Judge, you know, Verlander, you're taking the big names and you're going down the list, right? So you don't typically lock in a seventh inning reliever as your first move. You know, you usually save your money because maybe you really want one of those big names and maybe they're going to cost a little bit more. So you maybe need those extra pennies. So don't, don't spend it so much on Montero just yet. Wait for that. You know, you can, so, so there's that. And the second thing is relievers and, you know, all of Billy Bean's moves over the years sort of come to mind. Relievers are sort of fungible, right? You can develop a, a good reliever out of thin air Boxberger was nothing and then he was something and then he was nothing again I'm like there's all this volatility and a lot of times you can make a closer out of a guy Lou Trevino came out of nowhere like there's always guys coming out of nowhere that you can sort of you know say oh wow you just throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall oh that one stuck that one stuck and then you got a new closer for league minimum a lot of teams look at it that way instead of spending 11 million dollars on, on an eighth inning guy so I question it from that point of view as well I guess what I'm saying is I think you're more likely if, if you I, I think you're more likely to claim Boxberger and in three months be looking at your budget kind of frustrated that you have this three million committed that maybe you didn't need to and maybe you're looking to trade him again or something like that. I think that's more likely, slightly more likely maybe than it is that you're looking at your roster in three months and really kicking yourself in the foot and saying, you know, 
getting upset with yourself. I really should have claimed Brad Boxberger in November. I think that's kind of my argument. Yeah, I don't I know no if it's a strong one, that. but I think that's my argument. <laughs> yeah, no, I have no problem with that side. I'm just sort of wondering why you would overspend on Montero at this point. That's all. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no argument there, really. All right, that is it for the relievers. Uh, we have one other significant free agent to talk about, and that's Clayton Kershaw. It seemed inevitable. Last year, it took most of the offseason. This year, they got it done early. He's back with the Dodgers. One-year deal. We don't have an exact figure yet. Uh, Mike DiGiovanna, Di, DiGiovanna. I hope my Italian grandmother isn't listening. She'd be disappointed in me. Uh, DiGiovanna <laughs> said that the deal would be close to the $17 million that Kershaw signed last year. And then John Heyman reported that it's closer to $20 million, So somewhere in that range. Somewhere in about the qualifying offer range, which kind of makes sense. He, he wasn't eligible for the qualifying offer since he received it last offseason. Uh, but that's... That's a fair going rate for an aging Clayton Kershaw who just pitched 126 elite innings in 2022. And, and that seems to be kind of what you can pencil him in for is between 100 and 150 very good innings as, as he ages, declines, remains a little bit injury prone here in the back half of his career. Uh, but to me, when that news came in, sounded like it made a lot of sense. And I'm pretty sure the numbers agree. I think this is a case where you maybe get a little bit of a hometown discount here where you know he he clearly just loves being with the dodgers he loves la yeah. there was plenty of speculation earlier in his career that oh when he's done with the dodgers he's gonna go pitch for the rangers there was a whole lot of that speculation but that he's had multiple opportunities now and that hasn't happened it's pretty clear he's gonna pitch for the dodgers until he decides he doesn't want to pitch anymore is, is what it seems like so if it is 20 million and the contracts for 18 million whatever it's it's a bit of a hometown discount He's earned his money, and yeah. it's fine. Yep. Okay, and then going into some some more curious option decisions that I wanted to discuss. Um, so AJ Pollock, outfielder with the White Sox, he had a $13 million player option. He's been pretty poor the last few seasons, and always injury prone. And he's really he's getting into his 30s. He's starting to to decline, or I guess in the midst of a decline. And he declined that $13 million player option. And instead took the $5 million buyout, which, very surprising. Uh, and, and I guess I'll also, maybe a little bit less surprising, but I'll loop this in here as well. Uh, actually, no, no. Let, let's just start with Pollock. Let's talk about what happened here. What, what, what do you think happened here? He obviously should have exercised that from a pure dollars yeah. and cents perspective, right? Yeah, I'm pulling up the numbers now, but um, yeah. <laughs> that would have been more advantageous, but keep in mind he has a $5 million buyout so it may not have been that much of a difference so our model says he'd be worth 6.4 million in 2023 so yeah he would have been overpaid at 13 so if he's taking the buyout at five he's gambling that he can get another eight um and if he's worth 6.4 he's pretty close to that eight and we'll, we'll see how the market plays out so it's actually not that un unreasonable of a decision and then so that's factor number one fact number two is you know sometimes players just like uh you know i, I didn't really have to do well in in chicago i kind of want to change the scenery because it just didn't really go well they have like a negative impression of for whatever reason it could be the it could be their own experience their own sort of failure and they might say you know what let me just go somewhere else i think that may have been at play here and it's nothing against the white Sox. he just might have been at a point where he said, you know what, I might just need to change the scenery. And if the numbers are close enough, when you add up the buyout and out of what he might get, let's say he gets seven or eight million from somebody else, 
the same difference. So I, I can see it. Yeah, I suppose the you're right that the large buyout plays a role there. And if, if you're just not happy in Chicago and it seems like there's some turnover there, obviously with uh, La Russa being replaced and, and just kind of coming off a disappointing season and you've, you're Pollock, you've already made a decent amount of money. Yeah, go find somewhere else, I suppose. A um, little bit less weird, less surprising, but still didn't quite agree with the numbers, I don't think, was the Brewers exercising Colton Wong's club option. It was a $10 million option, $2 million buyout. And Wong is weird. He had a pretty solid offensive season this year, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm going to pull him up right now. Uh, but he had a solid offensive season. Yeah, 116 WRC+, plus, actually the best of his career. But his defense took a significant step back, and that's typically been his calling card. He's been a multi-time, I'm pretty sure, gold glove winner at second base. And so, all in all, end of the day, you're looking at two and a half Fangraphs wins above replacement from your second baseman and he's into his 30s now and we've talked a lot about the second base adjustment how it's just not a very valued position but you can also go the other direction with the shift being banned and maybe you'll think he is more valuable if he's a plus defender but then there's also the question of is he a plus defender anymore and so you can kind of you can sit here going back and forth with yourself for for a bit here uh, but yeah. I don't know. I think it's pretty inoffensive. The Brewers have a lot of question marks, and I, I, hate to, I hate to fall back to what I said earlier about the Mets and Padres. You know, the Brewers have a lot of question marks. Might as well lock in the sure thing. They like the guy. Keep him at a at a at a pretty fair price. It won't be it won't be unmovable if they do fall out of contention and want to trade him. Yeah, I mean, we have his estimated fair value at eight point five, and if they're giving him tens, yeah, it's close enough. Um, I find it interesting that the Brewers also tra- remember they traded for Jackie Bradley Jr. last year. Didn't quite work out, but after that, um, David Stearns, who was still then the the um, head of baseball operations, said, "You know, there's two ways to win a game. One is run creation. One is run prevention. We we think you should look fairly at both." And Wong's been more known for the run prevention side of things, and so there's that. But yes, a closer look at the numbers would say, yeah, he's fallen off defensively. Weird. It's very weird that he would turn around and have a better offensive year. So maybe it, maybe the total picture doesn't matter though. Maybe he's about the same when you sort of nut that out and say, okay, he's close enough to ten that we can give him something. And you know, it's probably some ancillary value that we're not seeing. Maybe he's a great clubhouse guy or what have you. I'm sure he is. So you know, they're trying to keep the band together. Maybe again, try one more time. We'll see. We'll, we'll see what the Brewers decide. But it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. And the last one I just want to mention very briefly because it's a weird situation and we don't need to get too in the weeds on it. Uh, James Paxton had a strange option for for the 2023 season, uh, kind of. Basically, the Red Sox had a club option on him that was a two-year club option. It would have guaranteed him $13 million in 2023 and 2024. They declined that option, obviously. Paxton didn't end up pitching in the big leagues for them in 2022. He was one of those take-a-chance-on-a-guy-after-a-Tommy-John uh, types, and I think he, he had a setback of some sort late in the season. He was starting to make his return and then had an, another injury and ended up being shut down for the year, so he didn't pitch at all in the big leagues. So obviously they're not going to execute that two-year $26 million, uh, but... Since they declined it, Paxton had the ability to accept a one-year $4 million option, and he went ahead and did that, which is a little bit interesting. Um, I think it's okay to 
you know, projects some fuzziness around what the model will say about Paxton because there's some very clear injury questions here that only he and the Red Sox really know necessarily where, where he is right now from a health perspective and whether the injuries that shut him down last year are worth worrying about for 2023 or if they expect him to be fully healthy and have a normal season. So there's a lot we don't know. There's some fuzziness around the numbers. And I think it just kind of tells you the fact that he accepted that option. Maybe he's not 100% healthy. Maybe he's, you know, he's targeting a mid-season or partway through the season return, or there's just some extra risk there that maybe the numbers might not have had. So, yeah, it's a very interesting case. $4 million, though, does seem like a bargain if he's anything close to where he was. The problem is he hasn't been a reliable pitcher since 2019. Uh, 2020, he pitched 20 innings. 2021, one inning. 2022, nothing. Obviously, he's had all, all sorts of well-known problems since then. And the contracts obviously took advantage, took took uh, consideration of that. Uh, but nonetheless, he was a consistent four-war pitcher, three-and-a-half war pitcher thereabouts. So if he returns to health in any way, uh, $4 million, he's not that old. He's coming up on his 34-year-old season. I mean, and especially since he hasn't pitched much in the last couple of years, you might think, oh, this is another this is possible bounce-back guy at $4 million. So that's what the numbers say on paper. Like, yeah, he's probably a good value at $4 million. Um, but we are not doctors. We don't know his medicals. And he hasn't pitched since 2019 of any significance, so there's only so much you can do here, you know. But, you know, I could see, you know, if the Red Sox didn't want him at $4 million, I could see a team like the Giants, who's been very active in this space with Alex Wood and all these other guys who had similar stories. Like, yeah, we'll take a shot on him for $4 million. So I can see some value there, just looking at it from a, another team's perspective. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, at $4 million, he's even if he's a reliever, you know, yeah. pitches 50 innings this year. That's got some value. He's a lefty. That'll yeah. lefties with a pulse usually get about $4 million, I think. Yeah, right. I mean, we know he's made of glass at this point. We don't know how much <laughs> that glass is shattered, but there's something. He's always had talent, right? So $4 million is not bad, especially, you know, if the market takes off, you know, uh, this year. That would be a bargain. Yep. Okay, that's all our news for these last couple weeks. I'm sure next time we'll have plenty more. Uh, but for now, we have four teams to get into. We were we were kind of previewing the offseason for all of the teams that got knocked out of the playoffs in our previous episodes. Last time, we didn't quite get around to the two teams that were knocked out in the championship series. And then, of course, we have the two World Series teams. Uh, so I don't think we're going to spend nearly as long on these guys. They, they made it pretty deep into the playoffs. That generally means they're a pretty set team. But there's some interesting considerations here for sure. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into that. Let's start with the San Diego Padres, where they lost the NLCS to the Phillies. Uh, a pretty fun series, two teams that you don't see that deep in the playoffs very often. And what do you what do you make of the Padres going forward? You know, they we, we talked about them a bit earlier, where they they re-signed Suarez. We talked about their rotation questions going forward where the only guy they really have locked in is Joe Musgrove and there's not a ton coming up in the wings behind them they have Juan Soto so they have kind of a clock going um, one benefit of them making it so far into the playoffs is those playoff games do count against Fernando Tatis Jr.'s uh, PED suspension so he'll actually come back a couple weeks earlier than previously anticipated he'll be pretty sure his target date is like late April early May at this point so they're going to get almost a full season of one of their best players, which is a big win for them. 
And then one other note I want to mention about them is we've we've talked a lot about how depleted their farm system now is and how they unloaded it for Soto and they made plenty of other deals on top of that. But we also got to give some credit here for not only you know their their scouting and, and JP Preller and everything, but also their development and, and everything they have going on because they they did it again. Jackson Merrill looks like a stud. He's getting very very good reviews from people who saw him here in the fall league in Arizona and his stock is climbing. And so he they're he's not quite there yet. We have him at 30.3, but he's almost, you know, another blue chipper that they've kind of picked up, not necessarily out of nowhere, but they've made him better than he originally was. And so that's not necessarily a guy I think they're looking to trade right now, but he's another piece of firepower for them down the road. So it's not necessarily an empty system, even if it is a very, very weak one. Uh, I said a lot of words. What do you think about the Padres' direction and, and what all these holes that they have to fill this offseason? Okay, so let's start with their budget. So their estimated payroll, according to our friends at Fangraphs, for 2023 is over $224 million. The luxury tax, the first threshold, is 233 which means they've got 8 or $9 million leeway to play with, which isn't much. Um, now, they have – I think they went over last year, possibly the year before as well. I'm not sure. Um, and their owner is like, yeah, go for it. He's been giving Preller the green light. But there's only so much you – so far, you, I know we talked about – Okay, if you're going to go over, go over, but the next threshold is 253. And, you know, there, it, it's getting up there, right? There's a certain point you go, like, they can't spend their way. Um, they got to replace some of these guys they lost, but, like, how are they going to do that? With uh, They're not going to go Steve Cohen money and go up to 300, right? They may go up to, like, two, 240, you know, but, like, there's still not that much. We're already at 224 ish. So, like, okay. So then they can go to the trade market. Oops, they've traded away everybody except for Jackson Merrill. <laughs> okay. So, like, what are your options here if you want to fill these holes? Uh, yeah. Now, the good news is you are getting Tatis back. And assuming he has chastened from his, you know, misadventures and <laughs> you get, hopefully, gets back in shape and then, you know, spends the winter in San Diego instead of horsing around elsewhere, maybe you get, like, you know, okay, Tatis is going to be good again, and so then you can put, you know, Kim at second and move him around a little bit, and you can put Cronenworth at first, maybe. You know, you can move some chess pieces a little bit. That'll help, but you still got some other holes to fill. You do have one year left, like we said, of Darvish and Snell. Um, they did sign Musgrove to an extension, so that's good. So your rotation is fairly solid for one more year. So maybe the owner says, okay, let's give it one more shot because otherwise we're going to run out of resources Preller, go ahead and trade Jackson Merrill for something else to fill the hole with, and 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 we're all in. <laughs> you know, that's that's the way I see him going. Yeah, looking at roster resources, it's actually more bleak than I kind of anticipated. You, you look at what they have in place, and even when you account for Tatis coming back, you absolutely need two more starters. Like that's, it's not like an optional thing. Like right mm. now they have Jay Groom and Adrian Morejon. Yeah, no, you're right. You don't want that to be locked in for, for, you know, fourth and fifth starter. You can maybe yeah. get by with one of those guys being your fifth starter and try him out. And if things go wrong, you go get an Odorizzi type at the deadline or whatever. But they're, if they're really going to be competing with the Dodgers, they want two guys. So they need two starting pitchers. Mm-hmm. They absolutely need an outfielder. Right now, their left fielder is penciled in as Taylor Colway. <laughs> Colway? I've never heard of him. I'm sorry. 28-year-old, Rule 5 eligible. 
number 93 on roster resource. I'm sorry. I said that, to yeah, his I credit, 112 WRC plus in AAA last year, but uh, 28. Yeah, so... he's, yeah, he's a quad A guy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So they need an outfielder. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. And uh, you could really make a strong argument for another bat. They just lost Drury and Josh Bell to free agency. And that means that they have Jorge Alfaro penciled in as their DH. I don't know about that. Yeah. E- yeah. guy Rosario is filling in at second base until Tatis is back. You can live with that, I guess. But they also lost Profar. I know they liked him a lot. Yeah. And so there's just so much. And that's not to get to the bullpen where you could probably use a couple guys too. So yeah, there's a lot of work to do. And you're right. There's not a lot of money to do it with. And there's not a lot of guys you can move to... You know, find that money. I think I think one of the things is maybe you non-tender Jorge Alfaro, but it seems like Preller really likes him. Yeah. Um, maybe you find a trade for Blake Snell, but then you just need a third starter. So I don't know what you do here. I, I think Hader is causing some problems for them. Maybe they didn't need Josh Hader. Maybe that's a thought. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, he's Preller has pushed all his chips in at this point. I don't see any other option for him at this point other than to push more chips in. I think Trade Merrill is his best shot at filling a hole or two. Um, I mean, he's been known to go for, you know, he wiped out most of the farm with Soto, so I don't put it past him to, to do it again with whatever's got left. I think that's his best option here. Yeah, I got to agree with you. I'm, I don't think I've ever been really a fan of absolutely just clearing out the cupboard, no prospects <laughs> left at all, because... What happens if someone gets hurt and you need a replacement at the deadline? And whoops, you already traded Merrill and Let's Go and yep. uh, Let's Go and and Zavala, and now you're down to these guys in the twos and threes, and you can't get yeah. it done. Yeah, that's always a concern. But first, you got to get into contention in the first place if you want to worry about that. And this this roster as constructed, it's looking mighty angels to me at the moment. It's it's very, hey, we got Soto and Machado, and Tatis is coming back, and yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and don't forget, they're still paying Eric Hosmer's salary, or most of it, to play for the Red Sox because they just wanted to clear the roster spots. It's the only way they could do it. So there's dead money, too. <clears throat> it's not the most efficient run thing, but at this point, Preller's just like, okay, got to do it one more time. Um, so that's, I, I, that's what I think they'll do. Wait, wait, John. No way. You're, you're telling me that the Eric Hosmer contract is still negatively <laughs> impacting the team like five years after it was Sadly, poorly yes. signed? Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Shocking. Yes. Nobody could have seen this coming. Definitely not Dave Cameron. He definitely didn't write an article about it and then join the Padres <laughs> and sign Eric Hosmer. Oh, fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. I, I, I'm rooting for you, Padres. San Diego's cool. You have fun players. Uh, got a lot of work to do, though. Yeah. All right, Yankees. Uh, significantly less work to do, I would say. They're a pretty strong team. Unfortunately, they just lost their... I wouldn't say they just lost. Their their leader, their clubhouse leader, potential next captain, easy best player on the team, arguably best player in baseball last year, Aaron Judge. He's a free agent. That's the big elephant in the room. They're going to open up the checkbooks, do what they can to re-sign him. The Giants are going to push. Some other teams might get involved. That's obviously question number one, and there's only so much we can speculate on that. Beyond that, they seem to have a bit of an infield glut, Mm -hmm. and they could probably use a couple arms. They could really use Mm. some more reliable offense. Toward the end of the year, it was just Aaron Judge and a bunch of guys was Mm -hmm. how their team was looking. And once you get through Judge in that lineup, you're smooth sailing until you come back around to him. 
that's not to say that that it's horrible by any means. I mean, DJ LeMahieu played hurt last year. He's still a decent hitter. Oswaldo Cabrera is good, and, and he's getting more playing time. Gleyber Torres is good. He had a weak second half, but he had a rebound year overall. Stanton is Stanton. you got to keep penciling him in. But after that, it's a lot of question marks. I, I think you're happy with Jose Trevino at catcher. He just won the platinum glove, and, and he hit okay enough. You're fine with that. And I don't, I don't think this is a team that'll spend on the middle infield now that they have Oswald Peraza up and Anthony Volpe behind him. But there's some questions here about the rest of that lineup. I mean, they got Harrison Bader. He was on fire during the playoffs. Does that stick? He's always been kind of a glove first guy. Aaron Hicks is a mess. They won't be able to move him. He's well underwater. Josh Donaldson's a mess. They're going to have trouble moving him. He's underwater. And they're already a pretty expensive team. Uh, on the bright side, you can at least look into their look at their pitching staff and feel okay about it. It got pretty injured down the stretch, but some of those guys are going to be coming back either over the offseason, beginning of the season, or partway through the season. They could maybe use another starter to replace Tyone, who they lost to free agency, but that's not necessarily a need. Uh, but beyond Judge, they need to add more offense, is I think where I'm where I'm getting with this. Luckily, they have a they, they managed to maintain a pretty decent farm, even if they aren't trading Volpe or Jason Dominguez. They have some names they could deal from here to upgrade. Um but yeah, that, that's kind of, that's my nutshell. They need <laughs> probably a starter if, if they really want to splurge there and just a bunch of offense. Yeah, and um, Yankee fans on Twitter have been kind of, um, you know, making a lot of speculation about what they should do. They should trade Torres because they've got an infield glut coming. Um, I think they see the future middle infield as Peraza at short and Volpe at second. I think they're, they've been sort of clear about that which means Torres may be expendable. Then again, you want him to kind of be the placeholder maybe, and so you don't probably want to trade him until the deadline when Volpe is, is ready. Um, and I think they want that so that they're not just sort of over budget and you know paying high for everybody because they've got kind of the benefit of, oh, this guy's highly likely to be an impact major leaguer, speaking of Volpe, at a, at a league minimum. So yeah, there's a benefit to that. So I think they see it that way. Uh, Cabrera is probably kind of a... a you know, utility guy, super utility guy that you move him anywhere, wherever. He's been sort of useful in that in that role. Um, so you can, and Peraza's best attribute is defense at short. He can hit a little bit too. So you got to figure, okay, he's the shortstop. Uh, Volpe's the second baseman. Cabrera's the uh, you know utility guy. Eventually, you'll trade Torres. Maybe not now, but maybe at the deadline. Um, Donaldson and Hicks, you're kind of stuck with. To your point, they're both underwater. Um, it's hard to kind of get away from that. I don't know if you can, <clears throat> and I'm not sure. I mean, I think Hicks will go before Donaldson because Donaldson at least has a little bit more value um, in terms of the field value. Um, DJ LeMay, who you just got to hope stays healthy. Uh, I don't know that they have that many other options other than to kind of spend their way out of this. Like maybe they, maybe Rizzo declined his, um, his offer uh, because he sort of feels like he has leverage because he thinks the Yankees need him. And I think there's a case for that because LeMay, who's not really a first baseman. Um, like maybe you should put him at third and Rizzo, if you resign him at first and I don't know, they've got some moves to make and it's not easy. That's where the action is though. That's where the front office is looking and where there will be some activity. I think the rotation is fine. Cole, Cortez, Montez, they, uh, uh, they renewed Severino. Yeah, Herman's your fifth starter. You could use a better fifth starter. Okay, fine. Get one more for, for security's sake. Bullpen's fine. 
assuming they stay healthy, Holmes, Loisaga, they're okay there. Marinaccio's coming up. Uh, maybe one more, but it's not a high priority. <clears throat> so I think they're, and they got Efros on the IL, but he's not going to be back for a while. King's on the IL. So once, you know, those guys are probably going to be out for a year. I think we're both with Tommy John, but, um, you know, <clears throat> maybe another bullpen arm to kind of cover while they're out. Um, I think your big problem here is, though, uh, Hicks and trying to replace him with a better outfielder. I think Seidenberger is going to have to spend some more money because uh, I don't think they want to trade. They've kind of traded what they can. They want to keep Volpe. Uh, Dominguez is still a little farther off. Maybe Everson Pereira can get them something. But after that, it's kind of single-digit guys, so not that much capital to work with anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop the most lukewarm take I've probably ever spoken um i think it all depends on judge i think he's kind of a big deal for them this offseason yeah i i think if if they bring back judge i think even if they don't spend much on top of that they can shuffle some things around and put together at the very least a team that's going to contend and try to defend its its division title like at, at the bare minimum yeah and even if you However, judge oh, go ahead oh sorry no go go ahead go ahead I was just going to make a point. Like, you can't expect 11 war out of him, right? So even if you resign him, yeah, you get six or seven war out of him. Reasonably speaking, most models would agree with us, including Steamer and others. Um, so you're going to lose five wins, even if you do pay top dollar for Judge. So it's still going to be somewhat competitive, which means you should probably factor in some other ways to get wins. Just saying. Yeah, yeah. Excellent point. Um but I think, you know, you bring back Judge and you commit to spending a little more. How good would Brandon Nimmo look in this lineup replacing Hicks? You know, he gives them the lefty on base guy that they've wanted forever. Or they can go a little cheaper and bring back Benintendi and, you know, save some money to spend elsewhere on the pitching staff maybe. But if you're willing to spend more beyond Judge, then I think you're, you, you can make yourself the favorites in, in the East. However, if you miss out on Judge, things get messy. Oh things, yeah. <laughs> if you miss out on Judge, you are forced to get one of the top shortstops, which means you're kind of forced to trade a prospect, either Peraza or Volpe, if you want to make upgrades elsewhere on the roster. And I think they really don't want to do that. There's a reason they still yeah. have Cabrera and Volpe and Peraza, right. even if you know down the stretch and in the playoffs they didn't necessarily show that they were, you know, too into these guys. They used quite a bit of Isaiah kind of Falefa, um, but. They, they've held on to them this point they've held on to them tightly i don't think they're excited to move any of these guys and that's what you're looking at kind of having to do if you miss out on judge so i think it all hinges on him again yeah lukewarm take. totally totally and i will add you know i think they sort of admitted that kind of was just a placeholder for you know at short until peraza was ready um you know they kind of spilled the beans on that one i think in a recent press conference like yeah he did what we thought he would do was basically hold the spot down, but he's on our non-tender list, and I don't think there's any value there. So, um, yeah, I could see them saving a few bucks by non-tendering him, assuming these other guys, you know, meet their expectations. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna go slightly out of order just to make sure we fit this in time. John, do you have much to say about the Houston Astros? I know we covered them. I think off we kind of covered it already. Beginning. Yeah, they're they're you know basically they're bringing the band back together. It's a very sustainable team. You know, got one or two holes to fill, but other than that, eh, they're good. Uh, Verlander yeah. is a big question there, right? Yeah. Yeah, Verlander's a question. Catcher's a bit of a question, but they yeah. love Martin Maldonado. They could just roll in the next season with him. And yeah. uh, right now, Corey Lee is projected as their backup. He's one of their top prospects, so that's fine. Um, 
Guriel yeah, at first, a... maybe yeah. an issue there. Yeah. Uh, I think he's a free agent, is he not? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. what are they going to do there is the other question. Yeah, so it's it's first base. Josh Bell's been linked to them forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's catcher, which has been a thing for them forever. They've already been linked back to Wilson Contreras now that it wouldn't cost them Urquidy. And then the starting pitcher question. Do they find a way for Verlander to come back? Do they really open the checkbooks and get like DeGrom? Or do they do what they always do and they pick somebody that we're not thinking of and then they tick up his spin rate 300 RPM and he's a stud? <laughs> Well, they're always doing that, right? They're always bringing guys out of the woodwork because they signed for pennies, you know, and then, oh, look, where'd that guy come from? Um, yeah. Um, I will say the uh, they could probably use one more outfielder, too. I didn't love seeing Jordan Alvarez play left field in the World Series. I think he's a DH. Um, so. Yeah, and they never really solved Springer leaving. Yeah. You know, they, they managed to immediately replace Correa with Pena, and Pena's been pretty good. But Myers, McCormick, that hasn't quite worked out in center field mm-hmm. the way I think they hoped it would. McCormick is is fine, uh, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I, they were they were connected, I think, to Starling Marte last offseason. That might have made some sense. But there isn't really a clear option for them this offseason since even as good as they've been, they've never been pushing their payroll up into the 200 plus million dollar range. So, yeah, I don't think they're going to spend big and get a judge or anything like that to solve that problem. I think they're just going to keep doing what they do and, and solve their other holes, mix and match a little bit in the outfield and win another 110 games. Okay. <laughs> and the last ones, I don't mean to give short shrift to the Astros or anything. We're on a time crunch and we did open talking about with them and we'll talk about them plenty more throughout the off season. I'm sure. Uh, but let's close out here with the Phillies. Uh, America's team just <laughs> fell a little bit short, sadly. Uh, Kudos, as always, to Dave Dombrowski. He managed to get it done again somehow. Not, I guess not get all the way done, but he managed to convince his owners to open up the checkbooks, and it paid off. It got him to the World Series. Uh, no defense, just vibes and, and money. And <laughs> it's they have a pretty solid team still in place there. They don't really lose too much of their core. They lose, you know, their their deadline acquisition in Noah Syndergaard, but they're not losing any sleep over that. He's kind of washed. But beyond that, they return a pretty strong team. They need a couple starting pitchers. Right now, their fourth starter is Bailey Falter, and their fifth is Michael Plassmeyer, and I don't think that's ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have a strong top three of Nola, Wheeler, Suarez. They have an obviously yeah. strong lineup. Schwarber, Hoskins, Real Muto, Harper, Castellanos. That's scary Boom. even if castellanos was pretty yeah Bohm was was pretty yeah. good this last season even if castellanos struggled that's a pretty strong top six and mm-hmm. i think they liked what they saw from bryson stott at shortstop though i think that's i think that middle infield is the one spot we might see them upgrade offensively they've already been connected to xander bogarts and trey turner mm-hmm. that would be a big move for them to get one of those guys and you either play them at shortstop or play them at, and slide stott over to second base or play them at second base whatever you figure out there it would Im- improve the defense and the offense there and be a pretty big upgrade for them i, I think that's the natural one that people are going to be looking at um but yeah beyond that it's really just pitching and, and that's that shouldn't be too surprising given what you what we saw from them in the playoffs how the back end of the rotation and their bullpen faltered more than uh, the lineup seemed to did you say falter? <laughs> I did, and as I said it, I felt bad about myself. 
<laughs> Sorry, don't mean to pick up Billy Falter. He's okay. Um, but probably he's not your number four starter. They lost, in addition to, to Syndergaard, they also um, lost free agency Kyle Gibson and Zach Eflin. Uh, Eflin had been used in relief, but he had previously been kind of a decent back-end starter. Uh, got injured a bit here and there, but but was decent, especially in the later couple of years. So, <clears throat> yeah, I think they need two more starters, to be honest. Um, and, you know, it was hard to watch the World Series once they got to the bottom of the order. After Bones, like, oh, Stott's coming up, Marsh isn't it, you know, like, you know those guys were getting outs, you know? So, like, they need another bat there. They lost Segura. At least Segura could hit a single here and there. Um, but I think they need a, a yes, uh, I think an impact uh, infielder. The weird thing is I think Stott, you know, what I like to – what I think is going to be a topic – you know, as this shortstop market sort of heats up, and a lot of people are speculation speculating of who's going to be put a, really a second baseman or who's going to stick at short. You know, the market has really been pretty clear that you want to bat at short. I'm sorry, you want to you, if if you have if you have your druthers, a bat second baseman you want to bat. I'm sorry, I misspoke there. Second baseman you want to put your bat, and shortstop you want to put your glove because the defense is more important from short than it is at second. So in this scenario, you would think Stott would stay at short and you'd get a guy like Bogarts and shift him over to second. Uh, Turner's a bit odd because he is really great all around. He can hit, he can play defense, and you're kind of wasting him at second base with his glove because his glove is good enough to play at short. So it makes more sense in my view if you can work it out with Bogarts. I know he doesn't want to want to play second, but it makes more sense to put him at second and keep Stott's glove at short. Because uh, that's kind of the way things have been trending lately. Um, so yeah, this you know it's Dombrowski. He just came out of you know uh, a pennant, so he's probably going to spend a little bit more. Doesn't have much in the farm to trade. Um, probably wants to keep his two best pitchers. Um, you know who are really the top prospects on the farm. So um, I don't see that happening unless he gets desperate. Um, but yeah, otherwise I think they're in good shape. Yeah, I think the shortstop second base issue for the free agents is really interesting because you're right that Bogarts is the guy of the bunch who should switch to second base and that mm -hmm. should make him a fit for a team like the Phillies that have Stott or the Mariners who they have JP Crawford who they love at, at shortstop that should make him a great fit for them but he's reportedly very set on playing shortstop and that makes him tough to really put anywhere to be honest he's tough for tough to have him fit cleanly on any team and be happy about it and then you look at the other guys, and you're right. Turner is a quality defensive shortstop, but he's played second base in the past. Maybe he's more open to it. And then Correa, he just had a poor defensive season by uh, outs above average. But dude's got a cannon, and he's historically been a phenomenal defender. So, you know, if you're moving him anywhere, I feel like it's third base, right? And, and then there's Dansby Swanson, who's the best defender of the bunch. So much of his value comes from playing a plus shortstop. I don't think he's moving off the position. So... It's a tough situation. It's like, come on, Xander. You could, I think you could make a larger market for yourself if you were very open about a willingness to move to second. Or maybe it's posturing. You know, Maybe it's, well, I like the team and I like the fit, but I don't like playing second base. But if you give me an extra $10 million, maybe I'll think about it. Like Maybe it's that kind of thing with, with Bogarts. I don't know. I'm, is Boris his agent? That sounds like a Boris kind of thing. Yes, he is. I remember the X-Men pun he made at the, the GM meetings. <laughs> yeah, yes. right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe that's all this is, but you're right. It's a, it's a weird situation with the infielders. Um, the one last thing 
about the Phillies, not to not to get too far off topic here, um, is the payroll is going to be a question for them as well. As we mentioned, they pushed pretty high last offseason, uh, pushing for Castellanos and Schwarber. And so they're already estimated to be sitting at $190 million, and they finished 2022 at $242. Mm. And you, know, you look at that and you say, cool, they have $50 million to, to, to go, but I'm not sure they're going to push quite that high again. And as we said, they have two starters they need to fill in, a bunch of relievers, and oh yeah, they might be interested in one of these top shortstops. So it's going to be interesting to get that all to fit. As you mentioned, Painter and Abel probably aren't going anywhere, and those are their two top prospects. After that, there's a bit of a drop-off. So we'll we'll have to see how creative they get and, and how much further Dombrowski can push ownership there. Yeah. Um, and look, the other obvious sort of point is you know, this is not a defensive team. This is a bat first team. Um, you got Schwarber left, got Castellanos, who really should be a DH. Um, you know, there's always been talk of Bo moving from third to first, although he's gotten a little bit better at third. He made some nice plays in the World Series. Um, you know, but <clears throat> this is not a glove team. And so if you sign a Bogarts and end up playing it short, it just makes that problem worse which is why I'm not quite like seeing him signed as a shortstop there. I think it, it, yeah, all the signs point to, yes, sign Bogarts, put him second if he's willing to. But then you may have to overpay for him to make that that choice, right? And so the budget comes. Now, the good news is your your owner has been known to spend money at times. He's the same owner who said the stupid money quote for when they signed Bryce Harper. And, you know, they just come out for World Series, so everyone's feeling good. So, you know. I would imagine he's not going to be a stickler necessarily for a few bucks here and there, but uh, you know, who knows? Yeah. I'm proud of us, John. We got it under an hour 30. Yeah. That's that's everything (laughs) that I wanted to hit today. Do you have anything else uh, left over? Um, No. Well, I just want to say, you know, we've been sort of doing some daily maintenance on the site in terms of like players who, you know, it's the time of year where, you know, players didn't make the cut you know because a lot of guys who came off the il had to be added back to the 40 which means some guys got dropped some sort of marginal minor leaguers you know were basically cut loose as minor league free agents so we've been following that so a lot of that maintenance is you know it's just you know small level stuff but it's important to kind of keep things uh, open so you'll see you'll see that and then the last point is just as we hinted at earlier in the show we're going to keep an eye on the free agent market because if the trend is up, then we're going to recalibrate and just make an adjustment up for everybody's value. But if it's not, then it's not. So it's still early to tell, but we'll keep an eye on it. Yep. Sounds good. And as I mentioned earlier in this episode, uh, deadline to protect for the rule five is on Tuesday. So you're going to see plenty more roster shuffling between now and then probably right. a couple low end trades, maybe a couple with notable names, definitely some DFAs and some prospects being added. Keep an eye on the Rays, as always. Keep an eye on the Guardians. We've been talking about them plenty. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see what else happens, and we'll be ready to discuss any of those moves on the next episode. Sounds good. Well, all right. That'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.